Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Richard and Jackie are actually on a, a boat trip. And so, obviously, he's not here this evening to uh, continue our study through the book of Acts, which has been wonderful uh, thus far. And so tonight, um, thinking about what, what would be something very encouraging for us, something strengthening for us to, to even uh, go along with some of the things that Richard will be going over in the book of Acts that really establishes the believer's security in our Lord. And this passage here is one that uh, really secures the believer. Secures the believer in the work of Christ, secures the believer in having confidence in the Lord, securing the believer in having assurance. Because as we see these things going on in the book of Acts with the apostles preaching and many being saved, we also see a number of things happening to the people of God as well in the midst of, of the gospel going forth. There are times in which we allow things going on in our own lives or even external sources to, to rob us of our joy in Christ, to cause, cause us to doubt, doubt our relationship to the Lord, His goodness towards us, doubt our salvation altogether. And what we find here in this passage is you have the Apostle Paul in some very dire circumstances, and yet... His faith was unwavering. His faith was firmly fixed. And there was no doubting. Now, within this epistle, you see the Apostle Paul. He's, he's coming towards the end of his life. And you do see some, uh, some aspects of, of Paul in the sense of his loneliness. Uh, he feels alone. People have deserted him. He's sitting in a dungeon. He's, uh, he's not around uh, those whom he loves, ministering to those whom he loves, but he is able to pen these letters and still being able to minister. But even in these particular circumstances, and if we were in the same, by the way, we would, we would be questioning many things. Perhaps we would be questioning things as John the Baptist did when he's in prison, when he sends word to, to Jesus saying, are you the one, or do we look for another? Because this doesn't seem to fit my view of how this was supposed to go. Paul doesn't have those particular doubts. He's fixed firmly. And Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy, who is the pastor at the church of Ephesus, who is enduring a number of situations, not only externally from those that are in the church, but also internally. His own struggles within himself. And Paul's words here are a great source of strength. No doubt they were a great source of strength to Timothy, as I pray that they would be for us as well. So we are looking at 2 Timothy chapter 1, and we are going to read verses 8 to 12 of God's holy word. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is God's holy inspired inerrant Authoritative, infallible words. 
Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Let's pray. Father, we... We pray that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit whom you have granted to us, Father, would move mightily within our hearts, giving us confidence in you, recognizing our security in Christ, giving us great assurance. And we pray that the Spirit would open our mind, open our hearts to this passage, that we would be able to understand it, that we would be nourished by it, hearts would be filled with joy, reflecting not on ourselves, but upon you. Help us to remove anything, any hindrance uh, that we may have, uh, that we would give ourselves over, Father, to, to listening to the Spirit of God as he preaches to us, as he feeds us. Help us, Lord, that our ears would be attentive and our hearts would be open to you. Bless the preaching of your word, and may it accomplish all you desire. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> There's a number of things that we come to understand about Timothy from the first epistle that was sent to him. We have a little bit of understanding as, as he begins into this one here, perhaps of some of his struggles, some of the things that he is enduring. We know that Timothy is a young man. We know that Timothy is dealing with those in the church uh, that teach perhaps myths and fables. He's having to contend with them, having to deal with that, perhaps leading others astray. We know that Timothy also suffers from frequent ailments, and this was said by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23. He says, No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So there are things that perhaps Timothy is enduring in his own life, perhaps struggles with, with his health maybe, struggles with outside influences, trying to come into the church, lead others astray. And so you have the Apostle Paul who is being persecuted by the emperor Nero at this particular time. He's in jail. He's chained to a guard. And yet his, his concern is not for himself. His concern is not for his own situation and asking others to come to his aid. His concern is for Timothy. His concern is for the churches of God that they would continue to flourish even in spite of his own circumstances. 
And considering his circumstances, here is one who is an apostle of Jesus Christ, who is sent from God to be the spokesperson for the Lord, or at least one of them. And here he is in jail. Now, usually what would happen if we were, and we, well, I say we were, we probably know people close to us that have uh, done whatever, had certain situations happen in their life, and then they go to jail. And there is some temptation on our part to be a little bit embarrassed about that. Yeah, I have this particular family member, and they're in jail. This happened, and we might be a little reluctant to talk about it. But the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy and saying, Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me. Let me remind you, Timothy. Let me remind you of what is happening. Let me remind you of the power of God. Let me take your eyes off of yourself and place them upon Christ, who is our peace and our hope. So Paul is enduring persecution. His concern is for Timothy. His concern is for the churches that they, keep, that they continue to flourish even in spite of the circumstances that they find themselves in, or of the internal struggles that they endure as well. So he says to Timothy, of course, introducing his letters as he usually does. He says in verse 3, I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. You can see his, his desire for Timothy to flourish. Longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it, it is in you as well. For this reason I remind you, to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So here's what he says. Timothy, I long to see you. Timothy, I am constantly reminded of you. I pray for you often. I pray for you night and day. I remember your tears. What is he saying? I remember your struggles. I remember the things that you are enduring yourself. And I'm constantly lifting you up in prayer. And as I'm reaching out to you, I remember the, the great strong faith that dwelt in your mother and in your grandmother. And I know that it dwells in you as well. And because it does, Timothy, don't be timid. Don't be fearful. Don't be reluctant. Don't be embarrassed of any of this. Kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you. And that, that kindle afresh, it's to, to fan the flame. Stir into a living flame is the idea. The calling that God has placed on your life. The grace of God that He has placed upon you. That He has extended to you. Stay constant. Seek to lay hold of that which laid hold of you. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, not of fear, but of power, of love and discipline, of sound judgment. You can see his heart pouring out to Timothy. Stay constant. Don't be fearful. 
You don't have the spirit of fear in you. We have the spirit in us of power. Regardless of the circumstances, Timothy, we have the spirit of power. We have the spirit of sound judgment. So he says, therefore. Now, within this verse, he's, he's calling Timothy not to be ashamed. But this is very important what he says in this passage here because we have, uh, just perhaps as Timothy did, we have some very inaccurate expectations when it comes to the Christian life. And when we have those inaccurate expectations or those wrongful expectations of what things should be like and how things should go or how things are going in our own life, then it causes us to doubt. It causes us to be fearful, fearful perhaps of what may come as far as external persecutions, but fearful also of our standing with God. Where do we stand? There are a number of things that we struggle with. And so as Paul is bringing this to Timothy in verse 8, specifically to encourage him, these words. Perhaps he's saying these words because he did have some wrong expectations. But this is to correct it. This is to give him confidence, to give him security in Christ, to help him to understand that the life of the believer is one perhaps of struggle, but it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that we are abandoned by God. It doesn't mean that this is the wrong belief. It doesn't mean that God is angry with us. He says to Timothy, do, therefore, do not be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Don't be reluctant. Don't be embarrassed of the testimony of our Lord. Which you can see is the equivalent of what he says later on of, of the gospel. That's what he's talking about. The testimony of our Lord. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be embarrassed of the gospel because it causes these particular things as it is in the life of Paul. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me. Definitely don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord because in the testimony of our Lord and in the gospel itself, that's where salvation is. Everything that he did, his life, his death, his words, everything is life in him. Don't be ashamed of this. Don't be embarrassed by it. Don't be embarrassed because of the circumstances that you find yourself in as a result of the gospel. And don't be ashamed of me. Don't be embarrassed of me. Here is Paul speaking to his son in the faith. Oh, Timothy, don't be ashamed of me. And you know, these words must have truly affected him and emboldened him because you find in the book of Hebrews that Timothy ends up getting in jail as well. Notice what Paul says as he's bringing all this back to to the mind of Timothy, of all these circumstances. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, the gospel, because this is the power of God and the salvation for all who believe, as we read in Romans. Don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. He doesn't say the prisoner of Nero. He doesn't say the prisoner of the Roman Empire. He's saying his prisoner. I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I am here because he has appointed it. So don't think that this is somehow thwarting the will of God. Don't be doubtful because of the circumstances that I'm in. This is in accordance with the will of God. I am his prisoner. I am here for the furtherance of the gospel. 
And that's really what he says, isn't it? But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Be a partaker in these afflictions. Suffer hardship with me for the benefit of the gospel to further the gospel. That's what he's saying. And you know, the, the most extraordinary thing as a demonstration of what Paul is saying, especially when you read Philippians, is that when you read Philippians, you're finding that the gospel is getting into Caesar's household. How does that happen? Because he's in a dungeon and he's chained to a guard. What do you think he's doing? He's preaching the gospel to the guard. The guard can't go anywhere. He's chained to Paul. But what's happening? The gospel is going forth even into Caesar's household. I am the prisoner of Christ, he says. Don't be ashamed. This is purposeful in the plan of God. Join with me in suffering in order to further the gospel. And that is so, so vital that, uh, to understand that, that even the circumstances that Paul is in, that he is encouraging Timothy with, he is saying, this is all by the predetermined plan of God. This is according to his sovereign will because it is in the suffering of his people or in the afflictions of his people, in the sufferings of external sources, internal struggles, whatever, that the gospel is furthered. Now, how can that be? We have very wrong expectations here of what things should be like when it comes to the Christian life. We see this, uh, we see this often. People have expectations that are just unbiblical have no grounding within the scripture whatsoever. If I believe upon Christ, everything's going to be great. Well, you're standing with God. Absolutely. Does that mean that your life is going to go the way that you want it? No. Does that mean you're going to stop struggling with sin? No. But God is going to use your struggles internally in, in yourself to drive you further to Christ. And he's going to use the things that you endure that people see and perhaps even to affect them that they would turn to Christ too. Suffer with me for the gospel according to the power of God to further the gospel, for the sake of the gospel. You know, with, with the people of God nowadays, at least in our own nation, and we've, we've said this a number of times, you hear it a number of times, we really don't understand what real persecution is. And the reason why we don't is because of the people that came before us. We don't understand what it is to truly be persecuted because of those who were truly persecuted for the sake of the gospel. That as the gospel went forth and converted the hearts of those that were in this nation or those that came from England to this nation or any other country to this nation. As they suffered, they suffered in such a way for the furtherance of the gospel so that the people of God now may flourish. We say to ourselves, how can we flourish because of all the terrible things that are going that are going on? We don't endure anything like what other people do, and it's because of those who came before us. So the gospel was furthered by their pain and their suffering and their persecution. Could it get that way again? Perhaps it can. Perhaps it will. Who knows? But regardless, if it does come or it doesn't come, we look and we can see very clearly that the persecution of God's people and the suffering of God's people had purpose and it furthered the gospel. And that's how we should view suffering and persecution. 
various things like that. One, one man said that <clears throat> the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. As the martyrs gave their life for the sake of Christ, for the generations thereafter, things got a little better. Things got a little better. And they got that way because of those who were willing to endure. And even now, we look back on those that were persecuted for the sake of the gospel. And when we read these stories and we read these accounts, whether you're looking at Fox's Book of Martyrs or you're looking at at J.C. Ryle's book, Light from Old Times, and you're reading of all these martyrs that came and their horrific deaths, what does it do? It emboldens us, doesn't it? Even now, as they paid the ultimate price for the sake of Christ, the gospel is still furthered. Our expectations may not be what God's expectations are when it comes to the life of the believer and how things go in our life. And this not only includes such persecutions, but it also includes the struggles that we have internally. And you can see here that Timothy is not only having to deal with those that are in the church, perhaps trying to lead others astray by myths and genealogies and fables and all of that, but you see a struggle within Timothy as well. Timothy, God didn't give you the spirit of fear, but of power. Kindle afresh the gift that is in you. What's going on in the heart of Timothy? Is he struggling to, to be bold in his proclamation? Is he trying to reason within them himself? It's like, my, my spiritual father is now in prison. What does that say? I mean, am I questioning things now? Who knows what's going on in the heart of Timothy? But there is indeed an internal struggle here. And what does Paul say, even with the aspect of being or or struggling rather on the inside join with me be a partaker of these afflictions when you think of your own struggle and sin when you think of how how we often fail and we when we fail and we know that we have we have just erred tremendously before God because of something that we said or something that we did. It ends up bringing up those feelings of wanting to cower back because we're embarrassed by whatever, whatever it is that we've done. And we begin to, to start to question, oh, Lord, what is your, what is, what's your disposition towards me right now? I, I, I don't know. I'm, I, I don't know how... how I am right now as far as my standing before you because I have messed up so bad. Because of our internal struggles, we we begin to doubt our security in Christ. We begin to doubt our standing before God. We struggle with that. And we often struggle because... One, we have wrongful expectations when it comes to that particular thing because we think that because we have been saved for however long that we should be over this by now. We shouldn't be blowing up. We shouldn't be saying this. We, we shouldn't be falling into this, this sin. 
And dear Christian, we have to continually go back to this. That it is not about you and your performance. You will struggle with sin. You will fail with sin. You will indulge in things that you you shouldn't. You will say things that you shouldn't. Because you will not be perfected until the day that Christ calls you home. And you need to understand that you will not be perfected until Christ calls you home. You will always have struggles in this life. And the struggles that you endure in this life should not continually make you, what is my standing before you? Because you know the gospel. You know the gospel. Instead, it should drive you even further to Christ. But we end up cowering back. Often, whenever, and you, you know this as well as I, that whenever, whenever you have failed before God, and it comes time, perhaps, that you work yourself up to it, that you know that you need to pray and you need to seek God's forgiveness, it often, there's a, perhaps a hesitancy there, or maybe even a, a gap of time from the time in which you have done or said whatever it is, and the guilt and the sorrow has come upon you, that there is a period of time before you actually go to the Lord in prayer because you are ashamed of what you've done or ashamed of what you said, or ashamed, wondering if God is angry with you. As if God is ready to drop the hammer on you. But if we can just begin to reason within ourselves and reflect upon the character of God, that was shown to us in Christ. If we can just remember this, then it will drive us further to Christ. We'll get more into that in just a moment. But So Timothy perhaps has some expectations of maybe his Christian life, maybe his calling, maybe his abilities that was granted by the Lord as if things would be different, things should be uh, a different way. But we struggle with that too. I should be further along. I shouldn't be dealing with this. Oh Lord, how I fail you often. How do you feel about me right now? We think these things in our minds. But you know, Paul points Timothy back. In the times of his struggle, in the times of his pain, in the times of his trials, what is Paul doing? He's pointing Timothy back. Don't forget this. If you're struggling here, don't forget this. And what does he give to Timothy? Beginning in verse 9, he's giving Timothy the gospel. He says, To suffer with me for the gospel according to the power of God, and of this particular God, of our God. He is the one who saved us and called us with a holy calling. Timothy, don't forget this. He called us. He saved us. This relationship was initiated not by you, but by him. 
This isn't a scenario in which we hear of Christ and we hear of the wonderful things that he has done. And we think to ourselves, I want that particular God. I want to serve that God. Think of how gracious and wonderful that, that this all sounds. And so we, we have this mindset that as if we go to the Lord in prayer and we say, Oh Lord, I want you as my God. Accept me. And maybe we think to ourselves, maybe God is just reluctant, reluctantly accepting us on the basis of, I'll accept you as long as you do good. We don't say that. We like to talk about unconditional election and we like to talk about all of this sort of thing. But when it comes down to the practical aspects of things, when sin is included, that's how we view it. God is only happy with us. He is only pleased with us. He's, he's not angry with us as long as we're doing well. Well, what does this say here? Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. He initiated this relationship. And he initiated this relationship in view of all your faults. And all your failures. And all your failures that you would do later in the future. And he still called you with a holy calling. He put you on a new path. Gave you purpose in your life. This holy calling which we find in Christ Jesus. This calling that he, that he gave, as we understand, of course, is the effectual calling of God, the calling that achieves its desired purpose. He calls and you answer. As the scripture tells us, by his doing you were in Christ Jesus. And by this calling, this holy calling, he does set us on a new path to walk in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. But it was not determined based on how well we were doing beforehand or how well we would do thereafter. Does he change the trajectory of our life? Yes, he does. Does he put us on paths of righteousness? Yes, he does. Does he give us desires to be holy and blameless and to, to live a godly life? Yes, he does. But he does so in view of knowing that we're going to fail in our attempts. You know, when you read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, which we all like to run to when we're debating Armenians or whatever, and we talk about how he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. So what's the implication of that? You were not holy and blameless before him. You were dead in your trespasses and sin by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, with his great love with which he loved us, made you alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He saved you in spite of you. He saved you knowing all the things that you would do. And yet he sends Christ. He sends Christ, his perfect, sinless son, the Holy One, in order to die for your sins, past, present, and future. He saved us and he called us with a holy calling, not according to works. 
not according to our deeds. The idea of works there, erga, deeds, our doings, our labors, our efforts, our acts. It's translated different ways within the scripture, all having the same meaning. He didn't save us on the basis of deeds or doings, any of these things. And that is important to allow that to sink into your mind because this is what he's telling Timothy. And Timothy, is he's the pastor of, of the church of Ephesus. This isn't a new believer that he's trying to encourage. He's encouraging one that has been seasoned and it is teaching others within the church. Don't forget this because you're struggling right now. God called you and he saved you and it wasn't according to your works. You're failing at your works. Perhaps you're, you're, you're cowering back because of things that are going on in the church. You're having doubts within yourself and your abilities and, and all of this sort of thing. But Timothy, it's not according to your works that he saved you. It's according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Grace precedes your works. Do you know that? Grace precedes your works. According to God's own determinative counsel. And according to his grace. He saved us and called us. If this is so important for Paul to tell this to Timothy, a seasoned pastor who has no doubt accompanied Paul and seen the amazing signs and wonders that we read of in the life of Paul, and yet he's still struggling and doubting perhaps, how much more should we be taking this in and allowing this to just saturate our minds to understand and and to let this sink in? It's not according to your works. It's according to his purpose and his grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. This is so amazing to think of this. Granted in Christ Jesus from all eternity, meaning before times everlasting is what the word means, or you could look at it as before times of ages. This was granted in Christ Jesus before there was anything. By his purpose and his grace, his sovereign counsel, his unmerited favor, and it was granted because of Christ, because of what Christ would do. Not according to what you would do, not according to your works, but it was granted because of Christ, because of what he would do, his life, his death. That's why it was granted in the first place. And what is he saying to Timothy? Raise your eyes, Timothy. And behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Don't look at yourself. Look unto him. You remember in Pilgrim's Progress, when Christian still has the the burden on his back, When did it fall off? 
fell off when he looked at the cross. Not looking at himself, looking at the cross. And then the burden rolls off. Free, free at last. Why? Because he's seeing the object of his faith, or rather the symbol in the the book. His eyes are fixed on the one who did accomplish all that God required. Not himself, not his own abilities, not his performance. But in the one who is outside of himself, the one whom God sent, that's where his eyes are fixed. And that's when the burden rolls off. Your salvation was granted in Christ Jesus from all eternity in view of him. This grace, as he says, this grace has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. At God's appointed time, it was all made known. By the way, just as a a side note there, that doesn't mean that the grace of God was only made known in the sense of Christ came into the world and before that God wasn't gracious. You can see grace all over the scripture. And you see how gracious that God was in the Old Testament. And as I've shared with you before, one of my favorite passages is in Exodus 33. When, when you look at Exodus 33, and you see the, the parallels and the similarities of Exodus 3. I am that I am, and this is who he is. This is his name. And then in Exodus 33, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And you see the parallels there of this is who he is, and this is who he is, and this is what he does, and it's not based on anybody else but himself. According to his own purpose and grace granted in Christ Jesus from all eternity. This grace has always been. When Christ comes on the scene, then it's truly understood how God was giving this grace. How is he so gracious to those who were in rebellion against him? Because of Christ. If you're ever down on yourself and you're thinking, you know, what is my standing before God? Am I still saved? How can this be? Maybe one to think of is Aaron. Here's Aaron, who's going to be the high priest of the Lord. And he doesn't even put up a fight when the people say, we need you to make us a God. Well, bring me all your gold, and we'll see what pops out of the fire. He doesn't even put up a fight. He does it. And you have one of the most gross acts of idolatry right after the children of Israel are delivered from Egypt. And the one who fashions it is Aaron. But he's going to go on to be the high priest of the Lord. How can God have grace on him? Think of that idolatry and think of everything that occurred because of that idolatry. How is it that he can pardon Aaron and even pardon his people? Because he will be gracious to whom he will be gracious. And he is gracious to those that he has set his grace upon in his son.
This grace was revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. And it was he who abolished death and brings life. How did he abolish death? Because he took the wrath of God upon himself for all those works that you're not doing. All those things that you should be doing that you're not. All the failures that you have had. All the things that you have said and the deeds that you have done. He paid the penalty. And because he paid the penalty and he satisfies God's justice against you, which we understand is what the unbeliever will experience in hell, which is called the second death. He tasted death not only physically but spiritually in the sense of God's wrath being poured out upon him. So for the believer, he abolishes death. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. He brings life. He brings spiritual life. He brings immortality. Through the light of the gospel. This is why the gospel is such good news. Because it's not based upon you. And you know you have, you have those instances in which, in which you hear these words. And, and you know that the scripture is saying this. But I still just, I don't believe this. What is it that would make you believe? What experience do you need? More so than what the scripture has revealed to you, and not only that, but what Christ has already done in your life to give you assurance that you are his. What else do you need? As Dr. Beaky points out, when people are asked that question, oftentimes they say, I don't know. I don't even know what I need. Why is it that you don't know what you need? Because you're still fixated on you when you need to be fixated on him. That's your hope and your peace and your security and your confidence and your assurance. Him. I don't have to experience anything because it's not about my experience which gives me assurance. My assurance is outside of myself. It's outside of you. My assurance is in him. He's the object. The object of faith is Christ. The object of faith is it works. The object of faith isn't labor. The object of faith is not performance. The object of faith is a person. The one and only person. Which is the glorious son of God. That's where faith lies. In him. That's why you must lift your eyes. Lift your eyes to Christ and behold your God. He brings, he brings light through the gospel. He brings immortality. He brings life. Paul says that this was the reason uh, he was appointed. To give this message. To not only herald the message to be the preacher, to be sent by God as an apostle, to be one who is representative of Christ, giving the message of God, to teach what the scripture is saying concerning him. This is the reason why Paul suffers these things because of this glorious message. But there he says, but I'm not ashamed. 
I'm not ashamed because I know all these things are true. I'm not ashamed of this message because this message brings life. I'm not ashamed of my chains because this message brings immortality. It brings peace with God. It brings hope. Now you think of, you think of this. This is why he suffers. He's not ashamed. How can he be so confident? There's, there's no doubting here. He's very firm here. Again, He's in prison, chained to a guard. Probably the conditions of the prison are very dire. But he says with such confidence, For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Some of your translations may say, I am persuaded. I'm in jail. I'm in terrible conditions. I have this guard next to me, perhaps, who strikes me at times because I talk too much. I'm awaiting death. Don't know what's going to happen. But I'm persuaded. You know what we would think? We would, again... Probably think very similar things as John the Baptist. Are you the one or do we look for another? This just doesn't seem to fit. You're supposed to be the king. How is it that the king's subjects then are receiving such treatment and being persecuted and in jail? If anyone had reason to doubt, it would be Paul perhaps at this time. And yet Paul says, I know in whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded. He's able to guard what I've entrusted to him. How does he know? How can he be so confident? He knows in whom he has believed. He knows the character of the God who has saved him. He has intimate knowledge of the God who has saved him. His graciousness. His mercy. His great love. Here's a persecutor of the church who is converted and becomes the greatest missionary. And Paul says, I know in whom I have believed because he experienced the grace of God in his own life. He he not only experienced the grace of God in his own life, but he sees the grace of God in others' lives. He knows the scripture, meaning the Old Testament. He sees the gracious character of God. He knows that God is gracious to sinners, and He's gracious to sinners of those who believe. He knows Christ. Christ who was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Christ who takes away the sin of the world. Christ, the Holy One of Israel, the Redeemer, the Perfect One, the Suffering Servant, the One who will justify the many by His stripes, by His life. By his death, he knows the very character of God. And because he knows the character of God and the faithfulness of God, he can say with confidence, I know in whom I have believed, and I am persuaded, I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him. 
what he's able to to he's able to guard what he's entrusted is he talking about his soul is he talking about his hope his peace his his labors Everything that he has done on behalf of the Lord, you could probably encompass all of that in there. Everything that he has done in service to God, he knows that on the day of judgment when it comes, he will be saved from the wrath to come because of the Son who has saved him. That's where his hope and his peace and his assurance and everything is, is in Christ. I know that what I have entrusted to him, he's going to guard it, he's going to keep it, he's going to preserve me against that day, that great day of judgment. He knows salvation is granted to those who are believing. Actually, we went over that in Romans. In Romans chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And he goes on to say these wonderful words in Romans chapter 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies And for Paul, in his explanation in the book of Romans, it's all over the book of Romans, specifically, God justifies on the basis of Christ our Savior. And so he is persuaded. He is convinced. Because he is knowing the character of God and of Christ, the gospel message itself, which brings hope and life And this is where Paul is encouraging Timothy to say, remind yourself of this. You have the words of life granted to you by the one who suffered and died for you. You have the message of reconciliation because of what he did. These words are true and they are life. And in the Lord of the promises of God are yes and amen. He is the faithful God, Timothy. And this is what the the apostle is also saying to us in the times of our doubting, in the times of our fear, in the times in which we are struggling within ourselves. Oh, Lord, how can you love me because of this? Oh, Lord, this doesn't seem to be going well in my life. Are you angry with me? When we have any of those doubts, we're reminded of the gospel. We're reminded of these truths. Now, does this mean that everything that we do is going to be wonderful to the Lord in the sense that he's not going to chastise his own? We know very clearly from Scripture that when we fall into sin, that the Lord chastises those whom he loves. And it's for the purpose of bearing that fruit of righteousness, as the writer of Hebrews says. So as we're looking at this, just to sum up a few things here. Paul is telling Timothy to raise his eyes and look to Christ. Consider the message that he has, the message of life, and don't be fearful, but boldly proclaim it and proclaim it uh, with confidence. To remember 
that grace precedes your works. Your works are not the basis of grace. Grace precedes your works. And speaking of works, you know, when you think about the qualities of believers, if you can just reflect upon what God has done for you in your own life, of how he has brought you from the time of your conversion until now, can you look back and you can see and, and, and to know that, that God has worked in you and has changed you? What are some of the things that we read in Scripture concerning the quality of believers or the, or the characteristics of believers? Well, one is they, they love the brethren, right? That they love the people of God, that they love the word of God, even though they struggle with sin and even though they, they fall into sin and yet their desire is to serve the Lord faithfully. And that's why they get so down on themselves because I want to do this and yet I find myself doing this. That's a characteristic of a believer. Do you know what it is to be poor in spirit? To be just totally spiritually bankrupt, having nothing to offer the Lord. And yet your desire is for him, O Lord. That your grace be upon me because of Christ. I have nothing, but he's everything. Do you know what it is to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Have you experienced that in your life? Again, there's a difference between someone who struggles with sin and yet desires to do what is right, and the one who just freely indulges in sin and cares nothing for doing what is right. There is a big difference there. For those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, they long for that day in which they will be made whole and no longer struggling with sin. Because the very thing they want to do, they don't do. They find themselves doing the very thing that, that is sinful and wicked, So if you can look back in your life and you can see how God has worked in you and the difference of your desires, that you love the people of God, you love the Lord and you want to serve the Lord, you struggle with sin and yet this is your desire. That's evidence of true conversion. That is evidence that you have been called with a holy calling not according to your works, but according to his purpose and grace, which was granted you in Christ Jesus from all eternity. You can have the same assurance as what Paul does here. And the same assurance that Paul is calling Timothy to have. When you behold the son and believe in him. And he says that all who behold the son and believe in him will never perish. They will be raised up on the last day. How can we be confident? Because we're confident in him. That's really what it comes down to. So as you struggle and as you, you doubt yourself, you have to ask this question, what am I placing my faith in? My works? My performance? Or is my faith in the one who lived for me, who died for me, who rose again? And it was his sacrifice that the Father accepted. Is that where your faith lies? Is that where your hope is? Because you can have that great assurance and security when you look to Christ, the author and the finisher of your faith. And I pray for all of us that that's indeed what we will do. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for the hope that it gives us. Thank you that we can have security in the Son. We, we, can never, we can never say that any one of us ever deserves salvation because we know ourselves. We know the things that we've done. We know the things that we are capable of doing. We know the sinful desires that go through our hearts. And yet, you have saved us in spite of ourselves. Father, help us and remind us every day not to, not to look at ourself for our assurance, not to look for assurance in our works, in our deeds, but to find our assurance in Christ. Yes, we can look back and we can see the things that we have truly experienced in our life by the sovereign hand of the Holy Spirit of God who has changed us. And yes, we can see this as a work of God. But this is not where our faith lies. This is not where our assurance is. It's in Christ. Father, help us to lift our eyes and to gaze upon our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. We all fall short. Father, by this passage, encourage our hearts. Help us to be steadfast and immovable in this grace in which we stand. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's children said, amen. Thank you for your attention and you are dismissed.